welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 27 for January 13th, 2011. Yay, second episode of the year. Exactly. The Which futuristic is... sounding year of 2011. Yep. So if we keep with our um, posting schedule, this should be hitting the interwebs in April. <laughs> Unless we accelerate our postings. But... Which we won't. If anything, we'll <laughs> decelerate our posting. Because <laughs> we're falling behind our recording schedule. Okay. Not only the recording schedule, but editing these things take so much more time than I had originally planned. Yeah, it is but time consuming. It's a labor of love, though. It is, and we want it to be just right for our vast listening audience. Well, the good thing about the Internet is that they don't have to be listening now, but it'll still be there in the future. Exactly. As long as I keep paying for the website. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, all right, let's get uh, back on the topic. So today we're going to talk about, oh yeah, uh, we guess we should mention that there's been a little change in our reading order uh, due to life getting in the way. So we're only going to be reviewing two comics today, even though last week we promised three. I know everybody said. Uh, but we're going to be reviewing the comic strip number five and Marvel's Untold Voyages number two. Cool. Which, which again, we're still in the post-Star Trek, the motion picture timeline. All right. So I guess uh, without any further ado, we should just jump straight into the synopsis unless you have anything else. I do not. Except right. that I'm looking forward to Aberration on Abaris. All right. Well, that is the title for comic strip number five. Uh, it came out starting June 29th of 1980 in your local newspapers and continued until September 6th, 1980. So this was kind of a longer one than the one we have been reading. Mm-hmm. All right. So the writer and artist on this one again is Thomas Warkenton. And I think this is the last one that he has solo credits on. Until he actually falls off the the comic strip altogether. So starting next one, he starts having somebody else help with the writing. Hmm. All right, so uh, let's get into the synopsis. So it starts off with the Enterprise being informed that a planetoid is about to collide with planet Abaris. Uh, Kirk is informed that they are two days away from Abaris at warp 10 and that they should head to rescue an archaeological team that's on the planet. Kirk returns to the bridge and informs the navigator DeFalco and Sulu. Yeah, Sulu's the helmsman and DeFalco would be the navigator, right? Yes. I always get them switched. All right, so he informs DeFalco and Sulu to head to the endangered planet at warp 11. So it is going fast. Uh, when the Enterprise arrives at Abaris, the archaeologists are very short on the radio, and they do call it radio, and that the uh, 
and that they state that they have found a discovery of a lifetime, and then they basically just hang up on them. Kurt gathers a landing party, to, and it includes Ahura because she personally requests to go because the planet is similar to the African uh, climate, and I guess she's homesick. Kurt, McCoy, and Ahura uh, start to beam down when there's a malfunction, and they disappear, but their communicators remain aboard the transporter pad. And the crew fear that the, uh, that the away team has been lost. I'm assuming they think they're dead, but uh, they just say lost. All right, so Spock orders Scotty to start working on the transporters, and he takes Sulu and Ensign Grey Wolf to the planet via shuttlecraft to prepare for their departure, there being the archaeologist's departure, and maybe to search for the away team. Once on the ground, Grey Wolf uses his tracking skills to locate the B-man location for the first away party, and... They follow the footprints that lead them to a do- the dome settlement of the archaeologists. They search the domes and discover uh, they are all abandoned except for like a nine-foot pyramid in one of the uh, one of the domes. Upon inspection, Spock finds a door to the pyramid uh, that opens to a ramp that leads deep into the planet. As the crew search deeper into the planet's crust, Sulu and Grey Wolf start having feelings of foreboding. And Sulu also mentions that the hieroglyphics and uh, statues on the wall remind him of something, but he can't quite put his finger on it. Meanwhile, while they're continuing down the uh, the ramp, an unknown alien is tracking them from a distance, toting a very nasty-looking rifle. And he thinks to himself that he does not want to tangle with Starfleet, but he will if if the stakes are too high. Spock hears the alien behind him, but discards it as maybe uh, the sound of a small animal scurrying by. They continue down the ramp, and eventually that leads to a huge antechamber filled with giant mushrooms. And these, these bad boys are about 12, 15 feet tall. Sulu, showing off his botanical knowledge that we saw a few weeks back, is commenting on the mushrooms uh, when they finally find the archaeologists Paul and Elsa Hoff. While Spock tries to explain to them uh, that they're missing some of their crew and that the planet is about to get destroyed, uh, the Hoffs pretty much ignore them and say, why don't you just join us for some tea? Which (laughs) is kind of weird. And Spock, for whatever reason, actually agrees to it, (laughs) to have this cup of tea before he can finish telling them about their impending doom. So while Spock is about to drink uh, the tea, Sulu finds Ahura's earring on the ground, suspects that the tea might be drugged, and actually just kicks it straight from Spock's hand in a very dramatic way. There's then an argument about whose earring it really is, because Elsa Hoff says, oh, no, that's mine, and then they're like, no, uh, this is Ahura's. So it's, Fibber. it's a little, little comfortable there. But as they're having this weird argument, Kirk shows up. He's like, hey, I was drugged, and I just woke up. And then, obviously, the Hoffs have to admit that they did drug Kirk in the first away mission and that they were trying to do the same to the second away mission because they're a little resentful to the Federation because once upon a time they were investigating a planet, and the Federation pulled them out because there was a possible cyborg uprising on that planet. So these guys, the Hoffs, are refusing to leave now because they don't quite believe that the planet is really in danger uh meanwhile scotty does inform the crew that he has isolated the problem and that they're about to finish up the repairs on the transporter 
the Hoffs go ahead and show them what the find that's so important is, and it's actually that the pyramid dates over 5,000 years, and there's hieroglyphics uh, on the walls that's written in ancient Sumerian, which is obviously an ancient Earth language. They feel that the discovery, plus the fact that they're, they found a timeline which ends with the Enterprise, a picture of the Enterprise, is just too valuable to risk leaving due to the possible planet collision. The Hoffs feel that the ship at the end of the timeline represents the Enterprise and that this means that it will be an end to the indigenous culture. Just then, the alien that's been tracking them ambushes them and uh, states that he will burn them where they stand. Uh, the alien is trying to rob the Hoffs of the extremely valuable find that they uh, said that they found over the communicator. Paul Hoff basically just tackles the alien and the gun goes off which causes a huge cave-in and almost crushes the away team. Just at that moment the crew is informed that Scotty has the transporters ready and is ready to beam them up. The Hoffs state that they will not leave unless all 2,000 inhabitants and this is like the natural inhabitants of this planet are allowed to leave with them. So Kirk, at the beginning, thinks that this might be a problem since the Enterprise can't accommodate 2,000 people. And then we find out that the 2,000 people are, are basically mouse-sized little guys. So he thinks that that'll be okay, and they, they beam them all aboard. The next shot shows the Enterprise blasting away as the two planets are colliding. The little small creatures are serene in the death of their world because it has been foretold for the last 5,000 years. The Hoffs are told that they're allowed to continue their work with these little guys. And then there's a weird comment that kind of suggests that maybe they're fung fungal people too, that, that maybe they're actually made of fungus and not some sort of living matter, which, which I didn't quite catch. And then at the very end, there's a little final joke where Spock laments that perhaps precognition is just a form of time travel so somehow there was some time travel that foretold the inhabitants 5,000 years ago that the Enterprise would be there when it when the planet was destroyed and then even stranger McCoy just says <laughs> that he's going to go off and perform a penal transplant and a penal is a gland in your brain mm -hmm. it produces melanomen or yeah, whatever. but but what is he talking about? Okay, so so that's the end, and we can start commenting. Yeah, sure. That, I mean, that, that's so that's the last line in the comic. Exactly, I, I completely agree. It's uh, I, I'm not sure if they meant if that's meant to be a joke or what. So, like you, I guess. I mean, I I knew it was a gland, but I didn't know all the details. But I looked it up, and so it produces melanomen or whatever, which which helps which helps regulate your sleep cycles. Right. Which is like, what does that have to do with anything? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, I knew that it was a gland, and when I read it, I'm like, well, does it have something to do with fungus or something? I'm like, I, it has nothing I, to do I, with fungus. Yeah, I, I looked it up too because I was like, well, maybe I'm misremembering what it is. And then I looked it up, and I'm like, nope, that's what I thought it was. What does this have to do with anything in this whole book? I don't know. Is he trying to say he's going to go to sleep? He's tired? Maybe. Uh -huh. But it just, I'm going to go perform a penal transplant. <laughs> the end. <laughs> exactly. It was a very odd ending. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I just don't get it. I mean, obviously it had a purpose. I just, just heart, I, I don't know what it is. Right. I mean, the whole Spock talking about, you know, because they time travel so much, you know, they've been in the future and they've been in the past that, yeah. that maybe, you know, every, you know, um, prophecy or whatever could just, you know, 
be some sort of, you know, time travel, uh, you know, ripple effect type thing. I thought that was actually kind of cool. And then they follow it up with McCoy's transplant. And I'm like, I don't get that. (laughs) (laughs) Another couple comments of things I just don't get. How do they... Okay, so, so they got that Rosetta Stone, basically, in the floor of one of the chambers, underground right. chambers, which has two languages, and the third one is Sumerian. Yep. And it's like, okay, how, how, did, how did they get the Sumerian language? I mean, are they saying that, the, that these guys at one t- point in time had the ability to travel to Earth? I mean, how else would they have gotten uh, the Sumerian language? Yeah, no, it, it's that's never explained. And I mean, up until that last, up until the cave-in of the pyramid, I kept thinking that this was a an extinct civilization because they've never once talked about living inhabitants on this planet. Right. And then all of a sudden, the cave-in happens, and now the Hoffs are willing to leave, but they're only willing to leave if the inhabitants go up there with them. And I, and I had to actually read it over again. I'm like, what do you mean? I thought they were all dead. Right. And then I read it again. I'm like, no, I guess not. <laughs> well, yeah, because they didn't say. So, okay. Because right. you know, uh, I was thinking the same thing. Uh, it seemed like a dead civilization. At least there was no evidence of, of there anybody still living there. And then you see these little guys running around. Um, now, so did that you... didn't make any... I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just to say, did you get the same feeling that they were trying to imply that... There's some sort of fungus, a living no, fungus I, or something? I, I didn't get that impression. Oh, okay. Although I will say that they're odd-looking little guys. They, they look like a cross between Bart Simpson and, I don't know, the Cookie Monster? I'm not quite sure. Um, <laughs> they do have a little Bart Simpson in them. They, 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 they got the weird flat top, and it kind of curves outward. Maybe the, the outward curving head is supposed to be like a mushroom? I don't know. Uh, I I didn't get the impression that they were mushrooms. <laughs> I got the impression that they ate mushrooms, but and they might have uh, some particular varieties of mushrooms might have given them some some drugs or something because they were talking about how the the two scientists were not behaving normally or rationally at all. Right. So were they implying that they were taking some magic mushrooms and? Um, Weren't in their right mind or something? Exactly, 100% of their right mind. I don't know. But... Yeah, I thought that's where they were going with it at first, too. And then yeah. and, and yeah. then did, did the magic mushrooms also somehow give these guys the ability to, at least not physically, but uh, like mentally time travel? I don't know. I don't know. But And, and the little guys are, are psychic because there's at one point where McCoy's thinking to himself that, you know, he's surprised oh. that they're so serene that they're not even – being upset about their planet being destroyed and then the little guy talks to Elsa and then Elsa says doctor they asked me to tell you that uh, they are aware of and that you would understand what what I'm talking about right you know so they can obviously read minds so I guess yep. is it also implying that they're able to see the future and well, I don't know the that, past. That, I don't know. I don't know that. I don't know that that, that reading minds lets you see the past or, or something, but or the future. Yeah, but no, I don't either. Um, but but that's a good point because I thought I thought McCoy was actually speaking out loud. But now that you say that, I'm looking at the comic again, and that's definitely like a cloudy kind of uh, text bubble. So that's yep. definitely thinking. Yeah, he's that's thinking. A thought bubble. I didn't get that. Yeah. Okay, that that that's an interesting point. Yeah, uh, and if you look at the second to last comic before it ended. 
where McCoy's talking to the two of them at dinner. I guess he's pouring them tea or whatever. The Paul Hoff says, to better understand the little people, we immersed ourselves in their culture. culture. And then McCoy says, a fungus culture? Mm-hmm. So I, that was where I was thinking, well, maybe they're implying that these guys are actually fungus too. Well, a fungus culture does not necessarily mean you're you're made out of fungus. I know. It just could mean that it's part of your rituals. You eat it. You uh, you know, take a little uh, magic mushroom once in a while. <laughs> it's all part of the culture. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. very odd. Uh, another thing, if I may, if I may mention, since we're talking about time travel and whatever, it's like um, this is yet. And I've complained about this before, complained about it, commented about this before. This is, you know, yet another Enterprise saves a plant's inhabitants from a deadly object. Sometimes it's an asteroid that's going to wipe out the uh, the life forms, odds are, but at least the planet's intact. In this case, it's a planetoid, so it's going to, I mean, it's going to wipe out all, all the living beings, definitely. I mean, if not shatter the whole damn thing. Uh, the, the actual physical planet. So, but it's just another one of those things. And then you'll remember that a few uh, episodes ago we uh, reviewed the comic where the guys with no elbows, <laughs> right. aliens with no elbows, had again seen foretold of the uh, Enterprise and company coming to their rescue. Yeah, uh, that... And they had the three statues. This time, instead of three statues, there's a carving of the Enterprise on the wall. Yeah, that's it's very like... good. I did. I actually didn't I mean, that was just last week, but I didn't link oh, the was two that stories week? together. Yeah, Man, that that wasn't that long ago. Yeah, that was uh, the Marvel series issue number four? Yeah, probably. No, no, it's it couldn't like... be Marvel. It was number seven, sorry. Because we reviewed okay. comic strip number four last week and yeah. Marvel number seven, so it was number seven. Yeah, well, okay, I, I can't keep them straight without looking them up, but... But yeah, I mean, there's there's so many freaking similarities. Uh, I'm sorry, so many similarities. It's like, um, yeah, yeah, you're right. But you know what? You can never have enough uh, enterprise saving the inhabitants from a uh, planetoid. <laughs> well, apparently not. The planet. So because uh, Picard I kinda, did it, I kind of hope that we we do it some more. <laughs> Well, I definitely remember clearly the uh, the Picard episode when they tried to do that. Um, oh, and then I mean they did it in the original series too, the old show. I, I'm I'm sure they did. I, I can't remember of a specific instance, but I'm sure they did. And in the comics, they seem to love that theme. Yeah, because uh, when there there was a couple episodes of uh, the Gold Key that did that too. Yeah. So. Very common. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's still good. I mean, I like the comic. Yeah, uh, I mean, there, there's multiple things that don't make sense about it, but I still like it overall. Yeah, I um, agree. One thing I, I did not mention – sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. One thing right. I didn't mention in the synopsis is that when the Enterprise crew is beamed up to the Enterprise and we see the Enterprise leaving the planets as they get destroyed, mm-hmm. uh, there is one frame where it shows the alien that's been tr- chasing them mm-hmm. that caused the, the uh, cave-in. It shows the alien actually lifting off of his head, off his head and it – we find out that it's a young woman. Yes, it is. And she says that uh, she hopes to meet Kirk again, and next time things will go her way. Mm -hmm. So I actually thought that was kind of a cool little, you know, that they're bringing in maybe a villain that can come in and over, you know, again and again. Kind of like a Boa Fett type character. 
Yeah, and that's exactly what uh, she reminded me of. I, I was wondering why. I mean, the helmet that completely covers her head, except maybe for her chin. I thought was what the heck? Are they, what an ugly helmet! I mean, obviously it's going to cover the person's identity, uh, but you know what's the deal? And it looks like the pistol she's got on her uh, on her hip, kind of like a low slung kind of western kind of rig. Uh, it looks like there's a it's a Klingon pistol, and then the rifle she's carrying around at the beginning of the comic series. It looked like okay. You know, it looks like it could be a Federation rifle. Okay, okay. But then by the end of the, of the series, when uh, she's actually threatening them with, the, uh, with shoot, shooting them, burning them where they stand, it's, it's the same, exact same Federation uh, phaser rifle as they use in Where No Man Has Gone Before. You know, the yep. one that, uh, that Kirk uses at the end of the uh, episode uh, to knock that big uh, rock down on Gary. So... Um, it's like it, it's cool. They're you know they're bringing some of the the, the different weapons. Obviously, they're 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 giving the impression the way this person looks is that they're kind of a bounty hunter, kind of a soldier of fortune, kind of a a mutt kind of situation where she's got all or this person has all these different bits of uh, kit equipment. Yeah, um, scavenges it wherever she can. Exactly. And the other thing is, uh, in the future, I, can, I mean, I can see this person kind of adding spice into future comic episodes, but it's like, how much, I mean, she's not very powerful. I mean, uh, uh, so I, I, can she, I can see her being um, Vaj, Vaj, was that her name? Yeah. Anyway, but, yeah, so, so a character that pops in every once in a while might end up being a little love interest, you never know. Somebody just add a little... Uh, little loci kind of spice to the mix, but not in herself being able to threaten the Enterprise or the Federation much. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Um, I'll be honest with you. Up until she takes her helmet off, I didn't realize that that was a helmet. So that's why I kept calling it... I kept calling him an alien because I was getting the feeling that that's what they were trying to go for to make you think that it was some sort of alien and not a helmet because it's this really bulbous-looking head and it has like these two just black eye sockets. Right. And I didn't catch that that was supposed to be some sort of lenses in in a in a mask, so I thought that they were purposely trying to make it look like an alien, right? Uh, up until that last one, but no, I agree with you. Uh, I mean, what are they going to do with her in the future? I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe Job of the Hut put a bounty on uh, <laughs> put a bounty Kirk. on Kirk, and she has to go <laughs> after him. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. But no, I thought she looked pretty cool. I mean, especially that. I mean, I hate to say it, but that last shot maybe looks she looks the best when she's just taking the helmet off because yeah. it makes her look more streamlined than just the bulky alien look that she had throughout the rest of it. Right. May I make a comment about the shuttle Spock and company uses to go down to the planet? It's uh, the same. Sure. It's the same shuttle that they used in Star Trek motion picture when Kirk had his famous little run around the refitted Enterprise, which was cool and stuff. I can see that kind of a shuttle. It's very small, with a very large, tall uh, set of windows on the front of it. I can see that being used, that kind of small shuttle being used uh, in Earth orbit at a dry dock, orbital dry dock, mm-hmm. but I can't see that kind of... I mean, it, it looks like a Disneyland ride. Uh, I, I can't see that in service on a starship. But. Right, which is funny, because it was just a couple of issues ago where, you know, when Sulu made the same request that he wanted to go down to the planet because he wanted to see 
nope. see the 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 wildlife there or whatever. Right. And in that one, they also took a shuttle, and it was a normal looking shuttlecraft. Right. But this one is definitely that shuttle pod, and they even actually call it a shuttle pod, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, they yeah. call it a travel pod. Travel pod. But yeah, I don't know why they would take that and not a normal not a regular shuttle. shuttle. Yeah, it was interesting, you know, sp- you know, mixing things up a little bit, but. I was kind of surprised about that. Ensign Grey Wolf. Yeah, what did you think about uh, that? I thought he was an okay character, but my lord, talk about stereotypes. I know. I was all happy when I first saw him. I was like, oh, that's cool, showing a little diversity that we've never uh-huh. we've never seen in Star Trek before, you know, some Native Americans. Well, oh, oh, and oh, then, don't, uh, don't forget about Chakotay. Well, I'm at original Trek. Okay. But then as soon as they get to the planet, he's like, oh, I follow these footprints. And, you know, just like... <laughs> He was what? a tracker. <laughs> yeah, plus look at him. I mean, I yeah, mean he's, you look he's like got Tonto, the long, but that doesn't mean you have to. He's be got the Tonto. long, long straight hair. He's got the uh, the band, the thin band around the head. I mean, he, exactly Tonto. It's like take his head off, put it onto Tonto's body. There'd be no difference. Yeah, it was very, it was very stereotyping, stereotypical. Yeah, I was a little which is something I was very happy with Chakotay. I mean, they they, they got an Indian, uh, Western Indian, into Voyager. Great. I, I guess he was supposed to be more um, Central America, South America Indian, I guess. But, you know, so he had the tattoo on the face. But other than that, I mean, there wasn't any stereotyping. I, I, that was great. And really, the stereotyping, I mean, I never saw people, uh, people from modern America with a tattoo like that. But, yeah, they, I mean, Voyager did, did a good job. This comic didn't. <laughs> right. I agree with you. Yeah. And he's not even in it that much. Once they get once they find the 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 huge fungus forest, yeah. uh, he just disappears. I mean, he's just kind of a background character, especially yeah. when Kirk and the other two show back up. I mean, it's yeah. just like we have the main cast, and then over here in the back is Tonto <laughs> in case we ever need him again to exactly. do some tracking. <laughs> Not much more. Uh, yeah, to do some I don't know tracking. And I what I thought was funny is that you know where does he track? He tracks them to. The little domed village of the archaeologist, but they've already just said that they did a little Passover in the pod, so they already knew where it was. So what exactly was he tracking? Mm-hmm. So, anyways, uh, I thought well, it, didn't the intentions were good, but but yeah. like you said, it just became too stereotypical. Yep. So, uh, what'd you think about at the very very beginning when they're talking about uh, you need to get there? You're two days away at warp 10, and then yeah. Kurt going to the bridge saying, Warp 11, Mr. Sulu. Exactly. I think it's movie, 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 macho of us. Um, okay, you want us to go warp 10? Ha! We're doing 11. Tough. <laughs> uh, and and isn't, it, isn't it really, really fast? I mean, what's well, the top speed of, of that ret- uh, refitted Enterprise? I think it can only go like... Well, I don't <laughs> know, because... Was was it was it, it warp nine like the, I mean the max you could do it in the old series, right? But if I'm not mistaken, I think in Star Trek four when they slingshot around the sun, don't they imply that they're hitting warp ten when they are doing the the slingshot thing? And well, that might be, but it's not the engines doing that. It's, right. It's the uh, which, by the way, <laughs> I you know I'm no scientist, but it seems to me. That the amount of boost you can get from slingshot slingshotting around the sun is nothing compared to what you would get out of a warp engine. 
Right. Uh, it's I mean, really ridiculous because you in the in, even in the movie you see the you can see the ship heading towards the sun, mm-hmm. and if they were doing even like warp five, they'd be so far past the sun before exactly the next uh, the next frame shot that exactly it it would be impossible. But but eh, yeah, we don't worry about that. Yeah, and and to be honest, I don't know when the whole numbering convention happened because I know that in the original series. They were kind of loose with the, you know, warp ten being the maximum. Uh, I think that was was warp. it the max or was it nine? Well, no, I'm saying because in in Star Trek: The Next Generation timeline, and especially well, in Voyager, they say that if you hit warp ten, you're technically in every place at any time. At, at you know, at the you're, same time, you're in every place at the exact same time. Oh, I don't so, remember that, but that sounds interesting, huh? So I mean, but I know that I know that. In the original series, they they didn't quite have the same rules, right? You know, so I don't know. So I, I kind of give this. I take that with a grain of salt, but I did think it was a little funny. Yeah. Yep. All right. Let me see if I have anything else. Uh, the only other thing I had was again, I thought it was weird that Ahura, you know, when Kirk's making the away team, she just jumps up and says, "I would like to go," you know, and it was <laughs> just done a couple weeks ago when Sulu yeah. did the exact same thing. It just seemed a little odd. And then I don't know what the heck a cyborg uprising on Lockheed was. I mean, exactly. what is a cyborg uprising? Uh, it's when your cyborgs up- uprise. They get pissed about something. They try <laughs> to take over. Damn it. Yeah, well. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, even, I didn't even know we ha- they had cyborgs in Star Trek time. I thought they, were, they, they done, did away with all that. Yeah, you're either well, a robot like Data, which there aren't that many, or you're just a human being. Yeah, maybe it just sounded futuristic—a cyborg yeah. uprising—and right. They went but of course, them. the Borg are cyborgs. But you know. that's a good point. But they're uh, they're from a different part of the galaxy, and they're evil. They're very evil, and they don't play by Federation rules. No, not at all. Nope. And the only last thing I have about this 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 storyline. Which I find funny because it's 2011, and we only have one more full year left before December 12th, 2012, when the Mayan calendar ends, and therefore <laughs> must be the end of Earth. Uh huh. Yes. Yes. So I do uh-huh. find it kind of funny that this this comic book was basically using the same storyline that this story this this timeline that's been chiseled onto this wall 5,000 years ago, when it ends. That must mean that the world is going to explode. Oh, there you go. That's it. I know. So that makes me a little more worried about December 12, 2012 again. Should, should I be worried, Ken? You shouldn't be worried. Should I start stocking up on uh, a cellar full of food supplies? No. Let me remind you of something. The year 2000. Do you remember all the hubbub that went on when we were getting ready to click over to the 21st century? Of course, Y2K, man. All of our computer systems exactly. were going to go down. Exactly, because nobody planned ahead. Do you think these Mayans are... I mean, they probably said, okay, let's go work this out. Okay, you know, I think I think 20, uh, 2012, I think that's going to be far enough in the future, don't you? Hey, guys, you, you think that should be far enough? Okay, we'll just stop there. Yeah, they, prob- that's it. they probably said... That's ah, all it is. By the time 2012 gets here, somebody else will chisel the rest of it. Exactly. They'll, they'll just keep updating it. Somebody else come will figure on. it out. Exactly. They just, they'll, they'll just, you know, come on. 
Well, if this podcast is still out there after December 12th, 2012, we will know for sure. We will know for sure. And after I saw the Nicolas Cage movie, Knowing, I think we're safe. I haven't seen it, so don't spoil it, but do we make it? I can't tell you that. Don't ask. All right, so that was that was it for me. Do you have anything else on, on this issue? I have nothing else, and maybe I better start talking because you're uh, turning into a Cylon. Am I? Let me check. It says I'm good, so maybe it's you. Maybe it is me, but you're a Cylon, man. All right, I'll be quiet for a while. Okay, and I'll start to talk. Please. Which is, of course, crystal clear. Okay, so our second and last treat for you today is Star Trek Untold Stories, number two, Marvel. Uh, the title is Worlds Collide. Published date is April 1998. The creative team includes the um, scriptwriter Glenn Greenberg, and they do call it script, which I find interesting. The artist is Michael Collins. Inker is Keith Williams. Colorist is Matt Webb. Letterer is Chris Elipoulous. Uh, editor is Tim Tui. Editor-in-chief is Bob Haras. Okay, synopsis. The cover shows Spock in a defensive position and armed with a phaser. He is looking at a dirty, knife-wielding little girl with a murderous look in her eye. Other murderous-looking children are behind the lead attacker. Large lettering saying, Introducing Savik, tells us that Savik had a very interesting childhood. The first page introduced the Untold Voyages series and characters, as if we needed that. The third page brings the reader up to speed on the highlights of the series' storyline so far. The action picks up on a previously unexplored M-Class planet on the galactic frontier, where Kirk, McCoy, Chekhov, Uhura, and an unidentified science guy make up a landing party that have just beamed down to the planet. They are beginning an assessment of the planet and its higher life forms before the arrival of an asteroid large enough to likely trigger an extinction event. Where have we heard this before? The wind on the planet's surface is strong enough to even mess up Kirk's hair. The two-page spread that follows depicts a wild and mountainous world. From a high mesa, the landing party is observing a huge herd of indigenous buffalo-like creatures who have the heads of seals. Or at least they look like seals. They state that they will follow the beasts to find out why they are all migrating to a nearby valley. While following the herd, Kirk mentions Spock is on an unexpected leave of absence. As the landing party turns a corner, they are faced with three or more huge beasts the size of a house. The closest Earth analogy would be, a, would be, in my opinion, to a Komodo dragon, but these beasts are much bulkier and muscled. They do not appear to have angry, aggressive eyes or anything, but their size alone looks like a threat to the landing party. Cut to Earth, where Spock is meeting with an impressive-looking Vulcan woman named Tapris at the San Francisco Vulcan Embassy. Tapris informs Spock she is quite clever, but her behavior is unacceptable, and she has tried to run away multiple times. Tapris wants Spock to speak to her with the objective of improved behavior going forward. Spock enters her room and calls her Savik. The young girl of 12 or so is seated on her bed, fiddling with a computer. 
Savik rushes to Spock and hugs him, saying she is so happy to see him. Spock states his displeasure with her emotional outburst. For the reader's benefit, Spock recaps the story of how Spock found Savik and a small group of other wild children that were part of a Romulan experiment. The Romulans genetically crossbred Vulcans and Romulans in hopes of developing a hybrid that had the best characteristics of both races. The Romulans came to see the experiment as a failure and left the poor children on the planet when they departed. Spock reminds her that she made a commitment to follow the Vulcan way and as a step along that path she was to stay on Earth where she could begin her tutoring in a neutral location. Savik says she is trying to be like Spock but is finding her emotions are too strong to control. She says Spock does not know how difficult it is. Spock reminds her that he is half human and is in an ideal position to know exactly what she is going through. They go for a walk to clear her head, as Dr. McCoy would put it. Back on the alien planet, Kirk is busy getting a huge sloppy wet tongue kiss from the huge creatures. The creatures are not hostile and seem to be communicating with each other via howling. Ohura is tasked with analyzing the howls back on the ship. Kirk finally says, after a long hike, that the investigation is over and they are heading back to the ship, which touches off a spirited debate between McCoy and Kirk as to whether they should just let the planet's current inhabitants get wiped out or not. Kirk plays the prime directive card and makes the point that if an asteroid did not take out the dinosaurs on Earth 64 million years ago, mankind may never have come to be. If the planet's destiny is to get creamed, then there is not enough reason, such as the presence of sentient life, to try to fight destiny. Back on Earth, Spock and Savik walk in the gardens of the Vulcan Embassy. Savik talks about how she is alone and feels like she does not fit in anywhere, particularly in Vulcan society. Spock talks about having similar feelings when he was growing up and how he took comfort and a goal in the teachings of Sirach. Spock said despite his best efforts, he never quite felt at home on Vulcan. So he joined Starfleet and found acceptance and a position of respect and authority. Savik jumps to the conclusion that she should join Starfleet too. Spock says when she has grown up, and if that is what she truly thinks is right for her, then that would be fine, but she should not do it just because it worked for Spock. Savik runs off crying and saying that she does not know what is best for her. Wah, 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 wah. Man up, kid. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, McCoy continues to plead his case for the planet's inhabitants. McCoy makes good points about why only intelligent life, walking on two legs, seems to be the only people worth saving, or creatures worth saving. Kirk continues to hold his ground as the asteroid is seconds from impact. On Earth, Spock finds Savik is up a tree. He joins her in an unexpected move. Spock states that he recognizes that Savik and he are more alike than he realized, and maybe his childhood could act as a template for Savik to follow, or not, but hopefully learn from. Savik continues to say she is a failure, and she wants to be left alone. Finally, Spock suggests a mind melt with him as a way for Spock to better communicate what he went through. She agrees. 
On the bridge of the Enterprise, Kirk is rushing off the turbo lift and giving orders that the asteroid be targeted with phasers and photon torpedoes. Kirk cites McCoy's argument that they should protect life in the here and now and, and not worry about the possibility of future life that may or may not ever develop on the planet. Before they can get off a shot, they see the asteroid being deflected away from the planet by an unseen force. They discover the animals gathered in the valley all apparently are focused on the same thing. Ensign Omal, the science guy, conjectures that the creatures are more sophisticated than they thought and that somehow they have joined together and projected some form of telekinetic force powerful enough to deflect an asteroid. The planet was saved and the crew amazed. Back on Earth, Spock takes Savik from the Vulcan embassy and brings her to his parents on Vulcan to be raised there. Spock's parents have more experience raising a half-human child than anyone, so the choice was quite logical. Spock's parents like the idea and take her in gladly, which is a little unexpected, at least to me. Spock and Savik say their goodbyes, and for the first time in the issue, Spock refers to her as Savikam. The issue ends on the Enterprise Bridge, where Kirk and McCoy ponder on the humbling experience that the planet's inhabitants did not need the mighty Enterprise help after all. Kirk makes a very Spockian comment to McCoy, who immediately says Kirk should worry if he hears Spock in his head. <laughs> a little reference to Star Trek Three, I assume? You think that's what they were going for? I think that's what they were going for. Yeah, I thought that was funny. Yeah, I, I thought it was cute. It was cute. See, that was a good end. That was a good joke at the end to to put in there. I think it was good. It, I mean, it fit with the storyline. It reminded you of a beloved uh, previous movie. It it was good. It was good. Right. And if you were reading it chronologically, this would be a foreshadowing to that movie. Yes, it would. That's a really good point, Donovan. I didn't think about that. Oh, really? I thought that's what you were getting at. <laughs> no, I wasn't thinking about that at all. You're completely right. So chronologically, uh, that what I just said there, that interpretation of what was being said, which I do think that's what they meant to say. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but it is chronologically totally wrong. Yeah, so this would be totally a foreshadowing to him having his Katra, or having Spock's Katra in Spock. In his head. Spock's Katra and McCoy in Star Trek 2 II and 3. Good point. I did not remember that it's out of sequence. Yep. So anyways, this was a I, – I enjoyed this story more than I thought I would when I first read the cover and saw what it was going to be about because uh, I'm already pretty familiar with Savick's background. And when I saw the cover introducing Savick, I was like, oh, they're going to totally change up her origin from – what I've gathered from other comic books and other novels. Hmm. But uh, I was pleasantly surprised that they didn't change it up too much. And I I came to this story with no preconceptions. I've read no background. Uh, I do not know the backstory of Savik at all. I thought she was just a character they dropped into um, Star Trek II and no idea about where she was from. Um, So it's, it's very interesting to see that they have a history. It's even re- it, this even more reinforces the idea that they that they had not only a captain, a cadet, 
relationship, but their relationship is much older, and that even more makes sense how they eventually marry uh, yeah. in the future. Yeah. So that, you know, it, it, it all kind of makes sense. Yeah, in that Vulcan's Heart novel, which was by Joe, so, uh, excuse me, by Josepha and Susan, or Josepha Sherman and Susan Schwartz, mm-hmm. um, I think they're married, but maybe they're not. Anyways, uh, they wrote a novel called Vulcan's Heart, and in that storyline, it talks about Spock's wedding to Savick. Mm-hmm. And in that book, there is some mention of her background about how she was not really raised by the Spock's parents, but, you know, at, at one point she was uh, taken in by them to learn the the Vulcan way because she grew up on that settlement, the Romulan settlement. Right. Uh, but if I'm not mistaken, and maybe I am, I think that they mentioned that she was on a Romulan settlement that her that somehow they got a hold of a, a Vulcan woman, and the Vulcan woman, I guess, was you know kind of like a Viking type thing, where they brought the Vulcan woman to that planet and, and ended up conceiving Savic there. I might be misremembering misremembering that because it's been a while since I, I've read that book. Right. But but this this storyline, this origin, follows in line very closely with. What DC Comics did back in uh, 1984 in uh, Star Trek number seven and Star Trek number eight, which had her origin about how Spock found her when she was a young child. In that one, he he takes her straight to his parents. He doesn't have this whole Earth thing, but mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily say that it didn't happen because it's more of like a flashback type thing. Right. I was. Pleasantly surprised. The age seems a little odd about how we're talking about in this timeline. This is after this is uh, this is supposed to be a year after Star Trek the motion picture because McCoy at one point rumbles that he's been back in the service for a year now. So I'm assuming that that means that this is a year after Star Trek the motion picture. Right. And yet Savick's like a little kid. I mean, how old would you say she is in this comic? Yeah, she's pretty small. Like 14, well, I, 15? I, I, I was estimating 12, 13, something like that. Yeah. but you're, So are we saying that you know from the end of this comic to the beginning of Star Trek II, she's already gone through Starfleet Academy and is you know taking her Kobayashi Maru test? Exactly. Good point. So just the age seemed a little off, but aside from that, I, I really enjoyed that, that aspect of the story. Right. So, but you know, in stories like this, it's not unusual to age kids quickly. My wife says they do that all the time in soap operas, and they did that with Warp Son too. They did. So, That's true. It's not unusual for the kid to, to be a baby one minute, then boom, next season they're back as a teenager or something. Well, nobody wants to see that whole growing <laughs> up business. They just want you no, to it's be very messy. the cute little kid, and then the next time you look, you're a, a young adult. Exactly. Because we want you to be able to talk and say something. And we really don't want to deal with diapers. So, <laughs> Well, I don't think she's wearing diapers in this story. No, she isn't. <laughs> and it was interesting to see a Spock in a, a strong mentor role and even like a father to Savick, which is kind I mean, which is kind of a little weird, <laughs> especially when you know what's going to happen eventually in the future. But. Yeah, that, that does make it a little oovey when you're reading it going, uh, they're going to get married. 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, I thought the art was pretty good quality. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think at times, I mean, there's a few points where, like, like in the first time you see Bones on the planet, he looks a little weird, the, that profile of him. But Kirk looks pretty good. Chekhov, I mean, Ahura looks kind of weird here, like huge cheekbones. But, you know, in general, the uh, I think the artwork's quite good. Yeah, all the female characters have overly large eyes in this one to me, which might be why Sabic definitely does. Weird. Well, even Amanda and Ahura, they both seem to have... I mean, I'm thinking maybe that's why you think she looks weird, because her eyes just are not in proportion with the rest of her face. Oh, hmm. that could be. But, I mean, but just... in general, you know, in general, uh, good, good artwork. Yeah, I agree. Now, um, I mean, about the artwork, I mean, that big stampede of seal-looking creatures that we saw on the first splash page. Yes. I mean, are those supposed to be the same ones that we see in the in a couple pages later that are starting to lick Kirk? Um, I say no. At least I hope not, because they, they do look, not look the same. Yeah, they don't look I think, I think, I think it's just another creature. Well, which I mean, I, which, I'm, I'm which sure one they... of it is it, which one is it at the end that's causing the telepathy to move the? Now, now that's now that's another interesting point because on the view screen, when you look at it, they're all like have their heads in at each other, mm-hmm. and they're like glowing or something. It looks like it's the big ones, not the seal ones that we saw in the first frame. Oh, really? I thought because it looked it... more like the seal ones in that picture. Really? I don't know. Yeah, I guess they have a little know. bit more definition to I mean, them, but. Yeah, I mean, they, they look very muscular. Yeah, very they, don't, big. they don't look as slick as they did in that first page. Yeah, where the very first page, I mean, they do look like seals. <laughs> yeah, they do. I mean, I mean, they're really smooth looking. Exactly. They don't have nearly the muscle tone that they do later. Uh, I mean, assuming that they are the same creatures. I mean, look, they even have whiskers. They've got seal whiskers on them in the first panel. Yep. The, the, the big two-page thing, you see them? Mm-hmm. And the close-up one, well, no, that one on the left. When you when you see these these big critters the first time, the one on the left has some whiskers yeah, of the uh, three that are surrounding the yeah, landing party. Yeah, a few of them on the left do. So. Oh, yeah, the middle guy has whiskers, too. Yeah, uh, they do have they whiskers. They all have whiskers. Maybe they are the same creature. Hmm. But, I mean, but they but, don't have whiskers when they start licking Kirk's face. Oh, well, yeah, they do. whatever. No, yeah. Anyways, I agree with you that they that the animal form looks a little different. So maybe it's supposed to be two different species. I don't know. Yeah, or maybe not. But Who they're knows? big. Consistency. It's like the rifle in the co- in the comic strip. It looks like one thing earlier in the comic strip, but at the end, it's it looks different. Right. But yeah, I, uh, I agree that the art. Where's Okuda when you need him? What's that? Where's Okuda when you need him? We need consistency here. <laughs> That is his name, right? The the Akuda from the Star Trek, the uh, next generation, the all the others. Yeah, yeah. Michael, Michael. Oh, yeah. whatever. Yeah, that's him. Okay, so let's see. Uh, so man, we haven't talked about it. This storyline is just like the comic strip. Planets, planets about to get destroyed. Yep. They kind of debate whether they should try to save it or not. Uh, then they debate on whether they should save the inhabitants of the planet. So, I mean, in the first one, they just ended up being little tiny guys, and they were able to beam them all off. In this oh. one, they're monstrous, you know, 
quadrupeds that they could there's no way they could beam all these to the Enterprise. So it's yep. just kind of funny that they were almost like the same story, but they just instead of tiny little creatures, they're massive creatures. Uh, yeah. But the same storyline was going on. I mean, I mean, yeah, these were written yeah. 16 years apart, so it's not like I don't think they were purposely copying each other. Well, one definitely couldn't copy the other, but um, yeah, it is, it, they 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 took different spins in some ways on the same storyline. Right. So in one case, you're getting hit by an asteroid. So and the other case, you're getting hit by a planetoid. The planetoid's going to wipe it out. There ain't going to be nothing left, uh, at least that people could live on or creatures could live on. In this one, uh, the planet will survive. It's just odds are the, the, the indigenous life probably won't. Right. So there is a possibility for a future. So I, I think the McCoy-Kirk debate, I thought that was, that, I thought that was very – I think it was very well written. I agree. I, 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 you know, so it's something I definitely do like in, in both storylines. Two, two interesting storylines in this one that that inter, interthreaded. I think the writing was good. I will, I will agree. Good. I, I enjoyed it. Um, and it brings up a, I mean, the debate that they're having is spot on. I mean, it's an argument that, you know, my wife and I watch Star Trek all the time, so. It's a debate that that we have all the time because she absolutely hates it when they throw the prime directive card out and they purposely allow a species or a planet to to be destroyed or or continue to suffer in some way. I mean, especially yeah. in some of the next generation and you know really strongly in uh, Star Trek Enterprise that there's a few storylines where I mean they have a way of curing the fa- the this planet of a disease. Mm-hmm. But they can't do it because of, the, of of a prime directive type thing, you know. I mean, it's it's a good point. I mean, who's to say that you know this asteroid is not heading towards this planet because of a warp core breach on a ship, you know, you know, fifty years ago, you know, that that altered that, that, trajectory. Yeah, that you know, or even caused the the asteroid to leave the asteroid belt and start heading towards the planet. I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you start thinking about that, do we have the right to divert this asteroid? Well, you don't know if it wasn't something you did that caused it to start heading that way in the first place. Right. So you should you should try to save those people. Yep. And yep. if it's the prime directive, I mean, all you do is you don't tell the inhabitants that you did it. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think beyond them knowing about it, I think in this – in this case, well, I mean, there was nobody to know about it, but yeah, yeah. But I, I think rather than them knowing about it, which they would have no choice if you had to move them off the planet, but if you're able to divert it or blast it to bits or whatever, like the Enterprise supposedly was able to in this case, which I thought that was kind of comical. So now you're going to get 15 jillion bits of, of an asteroid hitting the planet it, uh, it, instead of one big one. You I didn't don't know. see Armageddon? It, it all works out, dude. <laughs> Ooh, that 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 was a very realistic movie. I, I I think that was great. Right. So yeah. So just like that, one photon no, no, but, torpedo. But, but 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 the thing is, I mean, I don't know. No, you're right. So in 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 that ludicrous movie, which I did enjoy when I saw it. Um, did you say did not or did? I did enjoy. Yeah, I did too. I liked it. Yeah. Bruce Willis doing the John Wayne character. I liked it. I thought. 
if you could blast it far enough out so that most of the mass would would be diverted away from Earth, and then so the only thing you have is like some debris coming down, but the main mass of it uh, bypasses Earth, then that would be something that would make some sense. Right. But, um, you know, if most of the mass ends up hitting the Earth, but in smaller bits, you're probably still screwed, but whatever. Right, but we don't know how big this thing is, and they never actually say. No, they don't. Uh, and definitely, I remember uh, in the Enterpr- or in the next gen episode, one of the main points is that they didn't think they could. They, they they could. I mean, they tried to use phasers and that kind of stuff, but they didn't think they'd be able to break it apart in time. Yeah, well, which episode? Or move it? Which or episode was that? Um, I don't remember. Not exactly. remembering that one. I no. I could not. I could not tell you. Uh, I could tell you. I could tell you a lot of the original Trek <laughs> episodes, but I don't have the next gen memorized. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of remember that. I'm I'm just not specific on the details. But anyways, it's a common story thread, and and I think that both of these were done, you know, taking slightly different points of view and telling a different story, just with the common event, which might happen a lot in the future. We don't know. Maybe planets are smashing <laughs> together all the time. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, and we're. And we're going to be able to detect it in the first place, and then get there in time to do something about it. It's like, yeah, you, you know wow. what? I, I really wish they would have done in this in this issue. Yeah, I wish they would have taken the Enterprise to somewhere where there was a supernova and tractor beam a big chunk of the supernova in between the two planetoids to allow them to. <sighs> Rebound off of each other. Ah, now that would be awesome. <laughs> you, yeah, you do. Re- yeah, you do remember that, that. Sounds good. You do remember that, don't you? No, that was in uh, the Gold Key issue. Uh, which one did, was that in? Uh, hold on one second. I'll tell you. We reviewed it. Um, it was the. That's okay. The Planet of No Return. Was that it? I have no idea. I don't remember it. But I'm old. Oh no 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 no! It was uh, Star Trek number six from Gold Key, which came out December 1969, and it was called "When Planets Collide," and it was basically two planets which both had inhab- inhabitants, and they were about to collide, and they they beamed over to each planet, you know, and had little adventures on each one, and then they ended up deciding that the best way to do would be to go out get this piece of stellar matter from a supernova put it in between the two planets and that would somehow repulse the two that sounds like a gold key comic yeah it was and uh yeah. i mean we made lots of jokes about it at that time that that would not work at all because you know a big piece of stellar matter would have a higher gravity which would bring them both together even faster exactly like uh, a bigger explosion oops we didn't think that would happen <laughs> But anyways, uh, I mean, obviously this is not a new storyline. I mean, it's been done. It was done in the original series, which they make reference yeah. to in this comic. It was done in the comic books, and it's been done in other venues. Right. So anyways, but the main thrust of this story was the Savick story, as far as I'm concerned. Yes. It was good. It was good. By the way, Deja Q is an episode from the third season of Next Gen that did have a moon impact on a populated planet. I don't know whether that was the same one or not, but there's one. And that was the that's, one that, where that, Q that, lost That's as his... far as my research is going to go today. 
Q wasn't going to help him, even though he had the power to do it or something like that? Is that right? That's the one where Q was powerless. Okay. And requested sanctuary. Oh, and at the same time, those aliens that are going to try to destroy him because they hate Q so much, and he sacrifices so. himself. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that, 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 that's because of the vicious Calamarians, who sound a little bit too much like an appetizer to me. But Were they actually called Calamarians? According to according to what I looked up here. Oh, that's cool. On TV.com. The Calamarian. Hmm. I like a deep fried, personally. But, okay. And that's Admiral Akbar you're talking about from Star Wars. <laughs> you, you don't it's a trap! It's a trap! Did you did you watch Star Wars Robot or Episode Robot Chicken? Robot Chicken. Star yes. Wars Episode Three. The <laughs> uh, oh three? Yeah, they did. Oh, no, a third I don't, one. I don't they ever seen third one? Yeah, it just came out right right around Christmas time. Oh, I gotta get that. Yeah, it was funny. They're, they make a comment on that. There's a guy coming back from the restaurant, and he's like, he's like, they wouldn't give me calamari. Did you know that that is a people? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody told me, and I'm like, that is hilarious. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, I, I I like the one where uh, on on Robot Chicken, where Admiral Akbar's cereal, yeah, uh, commercial comes on, right? And he and he comes into a kitchen with a couple of kids eating cereals, and he's jumping around, and yeah, doing he's a like, That's your tongues good. can't take taste of that magnitude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. Oh, that's that is cl- that is a classic. Those guys are great. Far funnier than any of the Family Guy Star Wars things. I agree. I haven't watched the third one, but I thought the second one was really not that funny. The first one was mediocre. Yeah, and the second one, the I the second think it was funny one was really not good, and the third one was probably the worst. It was the worst. Oh, that's too bad. Just wasn't funny. Because I was debating well, on buying it, but I don't want to. I don't want to watch it. it if if it's bad. Don't buy it. Just. Just like DVR it or something. It'll be on again. Okay. Sounds good. Well, anything else to talk about on that one? Nope. I think we're done. All right. So next week we will be reading. Uh, we're going to take another look at another version of the Savic story. And we're going to be doing Star Trek Volume 1 uh, by DC Comics, issue number 7 and 8. And uh, we will get a little taste of the post. Star Trek The Motion Picture Timeline with reading uh, the, the comic strip number six. So all of that and more next week. Sounds exciting. Um, oh, yeah, I guess we should talk briefly about the uh, what else was going on when this, this comic book came out. This was April 1998, and the only thing that was going on aside from comic books was a New Frontier novel called Fire on High by Peter David. A Starfleet Academy um, junior, like kids' book called Deceptions, and the novelization of a Deep Space Nine episode, Far Beyond the Stars. And then, aside from that, there was some various Marvel comics that came out in April of 1998. So, so next week will be more exciting because we'll have some stuff from this, the comic books that we'll read next week were actually post Star Trek. Two, so you know, uh, and before Star Trek three, so during the timeline when Spock is no longer with us, so ah. a lot of it's flashback about you know the Savic story and Spock's in that, but uh, 
but he's not in the main story. So it, it should be interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. It's good to mix it up every once in a while. Right. We don't have to stay within the same time period the whole time, but... Yep. And and since these tie in so much with that Untold Voyages number two that we just read, uh, I think it's a, I think it's a good sidetrack. Good. Okay. So aside from that, uh, anything else? No. All right. So until next week, talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, stcomic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.